there are a lot of challenges in our profession, but there's a lot of wonderful things you can do with it and find your place, whether that be leaving it, I support that as well. But I think a lot of people perhaps don't have the opportunity to see the diversity of this profession and exactly what you can do with this career. And that's exactly the heart of what I like getting to. Welcome to Blunt Dissection the original and longest-running long-form interview show in veterinary medicine, where we delve into the minds of the creme de la creme of our profession and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Dave Nichol. On each episode, I have the privilege of dissecting the success stories of world-class talent, those who have scaled the heights of achievement and are shaping the future of our field. Together, we'll explore their stories, their life-changing decisions, thought patterns, processes, habits, anything that enable them to operate at the very top of their game. Our goal? To give you the insights, the inspiration, the aha moments that you can use to carve your own pathway to success in this incredible field we call veterinary medicine. Because remember, everyone, you included, has a story. So sit back, take notes if you wish, and let's get ready to dissect success on another episode of the Blunt Dissection podcast. All right, so welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection podcast. Today, I'm really excited about today's show. This feels like an episode that has been years in the making. It probably has in many ways, but today's show, I am super excited to be joined by Dr. Chloe Buting. Chloe is an Aussie wildlife vet and conservationist. She grew up on Australia's extremely remote, and we're talking like about 500 kilometres off the the coast of New South Wales, sticking out in the Tasman Sea, but a place that David Attenborough is reported, I cannot confirm or deny this, but I will believe it, to have described as so extraordinary as to be almost unbelievable. That was more David Bellamy. Accent included. (laughs) Accent included. Graduated from the University of Melbourne, 2015 with her DVM, worked in Australia, abroad, currently sitting in Germany, so we're not in an absolutely horrific time zone setting. It's obviously hugely passionate about wildlife, but also about inspiring next generation of vets to do more, potentially, that might be a leading statement to make, with their careers and think potentially beyond that of traditional pathways. Um, Her own career has been pretty diverse, encompassing both clinical and non-clinical roles, In the non-clinical, she works with the Loop Abroad organisation that encourages not just vet students but veterinarians to expand their horizons beyond the traditional and take what looked like, God, I wish this existed when I was a student, but very well organised trips abroad to just do amazing things in incredible parts of the country with animals you just would not get the chance to come in contact with. So we'll talk more about that. Working uh, as a conservation consultant with Fauna and Flora International, the world's oldest international organization in conservation, and works incredibly hard on Kangaroo Island. I'm laughing, not because that's funny, (laughs) but because it's also the post that I think is the cutest Instagram post I've ever seen in my entire life. Come on to that in a second. Aside from those positions and more of the day-to-day work, Chloe also sits on Zoo Victoria Science Advisory Committee as an official advocate of Kensington Palace's prestigious Earthshot Prize. She wrote a book 
in 2021. She published The Jungle Doctor, undergoing its currently its first translation, I assume from English into something else. Yes. And 100% of the author's proceeds are being donated to the charities that you support, which I think is incredible. And in 2022, you're awarded the Oakleaf Award by Trinity College, your alma mater, in recognition of services to wildlife medicine and conservation. Not only that, and perhaps you might know her from the Instagrams, where she documents her work and has amassed an incredible following, nearly 200,000 followers strong at this point in time. So, Chloe... Welcome to Blunt Dissection. Thank you for being on the show. Dave, what an intro. Thank you so much for having me. You've clearly done your due diligence on me. <laughs> We've been doing a bit of work. Like, I got to come to that photograph just now. And, and obviously, this is a podcast, so people can't see it. But we will absolutely, I think this will be actually, normally, Chloe, and I reckon you'll be okay <laughs> I'm getting with swapped out, aren't I? You're getting swapped <laughs> Yeah, I thought so. It's all the room. So I'm just going to put this up for the I benefit so. of the, the camera. <laughs> That is insane because we will put a video version of this. That is insane. I nearly died. Like, I just lost my shit when I saw that photo. (laughs) It's pretty sweet, isn't it? I mean, there's a a lot of things make me pine for Australia a bit, but boy, this did hugely. So tell me a bit about this photograph and let's just describe it for those on the audio. There is... Okay, you've got about, what, about 12 little joey kangaroos there, kangaroo island kangaroos, so they tend to be a little bit darker. Half of them are hanging in pouches from the little hangers and a couple of cheeky ones, I think, are standing up in the middle from memory. So that's pretty much a classic scene of what's waiting for you when you walk in the door at a, a wildlife shelter in Australia, particularly, as you mentioned, Dave, on Gangaroo Island. It's, I mean, it's well named, isn't it? It's <laughs> very appropriate. It's, it's, and there's just one of them hanging upside down, just hanging out and looking. But they're, I mean, that's cute enough, but they're orphans. But they are. So, I mean... One of the most common things we see on Kangaroo Island and indeed in any wildlife heavy area is unfortunately cases of hit by cars. And when they're a marsupial, it's really critical that you check the pouch. And, you know, more often than not, there's a little joey in there. They're notoriously pretty difficult to rear when they're at their very young pinky stage. But once they get a bit of fur and covering, uh, we've got it pretty down pat. So, yes. In South Australia, where Kangaroo Island is located, they can't be released back into the wild, so they go into these sort of soft-release areas that are huge and abundant and filled with lots of other roos, so it's still afforded a good quality of life. But, yeah, that photo is a hard one to pass up. You know, it just became so normal to me. It's not until I maybe show my husband and see it through his lens because he comes from Germany, hence why I'm here at the moment, and I sort of sort of reignited my love for Australian wildlife, and I can appreciate just how, how special it is. <laughs> I mean, it's. I honestly could sit here and just gaze at that image for the next hour and a half. It would make I'll for print you out a copy and send podcast. you one then. <laughs> but yeah, oh, please, that, a bit of a shock value. Your, your ratings might tank. <laughs> they, I don't know. I don't even care because it's just such joyfulness to to watch that. I even, I'm not sure I'd care about the ratings. I have to say, it's got to be on the list next time I have the pleasure of visiting Australia to go down and please do and visit come. I'd love to have you. I'll show you around. I know you lived quite a while in Sydney, where I sort of grew up when I wasn't on Lord Howe Island. And uh, yeah, come on down to Kangaroo Island next time and meet some of the local residents. That's a done deal. Okay, <laughs> so I'm keen to just wind back the clock a little bit. And you know, growing up on Lord Howe Island, I never got the chance to visit it. You know, in that way, when you're living in Europe, you don't go, or London, you don't go to the museums and you live in Sydney and you end up working and work just sort of takes over everything. And I, and I didn't visit Lord Howe Island and I'm sad about that. But I wonder if, could you tell us about 
your early influences growing up on this it sounds like from the pictures I've seen and descriptions an incredible place it was stunning it was such a unique part of my childhood and it's only been sort of since I've become a vet or when I was going through uni I started to reflect and realize what an enormous impact it did indeed have on me to the point of shaping my career but to go back a little bit I spent a few years growing up on Lord Howe it's as you said initially very remote in the middle of the ocean it's about 10 kilometers by one kilometer so it's this little speck there's about 300 residents it's a um, world heritage site so very limited infrastructure can be developed there which is great I think there are just a handful of cars and no one wears shoes so hopefully that paints you a little bit of a picture of what childhood was like there. Um, We did attend school, quote unquote. Is it such a remote place? You know, like Tasmania is is biologically, ecologically very diverse, but it's quite big compared to Lord Howe Island. Yes. Does it share similar characteristics or is it just too small? Like what is everything there? It really is just a little speck in the ocean. It's quite heavy with bird life. They had a problem like a lot of islands do with pests being introduced with the settlers, so rats and whatnot. And that caused some issues that they've recently had a really successful eradication program. So that's great. Yeah, it is quite unique just in the fact that it's just a sort of volcanic remnant that is really a little speck in the ocean. We have a lagoon sort of lining the island with an another little island in the middle of it so we used to swim out on our lunch break from school to the other little island and back and it was wonderful I would follow researchers around in their work and biologists because people would come over and study the environment and um, the marine life and I was there when a a species thought to be extinct was rediscovered the Lord Howe Island stick insect and it's since gone on to have a very successful breeding and recovery program through Zoos Victoria so it's a really nice sort of circle around that I'm now consulting on the Zoos Victoria Science Advisory Committee so that's really lovely too. No Lord Howe definitely shaped the career that I have I always after that decided I wanted to work out in nature and with wildlife and I didn't do too much due diligence on the veterinary profession. Thankfully, I absolutely love my career. I've since learnt there are lots of ways to be involved with conservation, but it's been a wonderful ride and I couldn't sort of see anything else for myself. I wonder as you're speaking, you know, that's a place that sort of influenced you greatly. Who are your heroes? I love I love thinking about, vet, you know, calling the veterinary heroes. Who are your veterinary heroes? And not necessarily from within veterinary, but inspired you in your journey. Anyone stand out? Yeah, someone did stand out. Larry Vogelnest. So he's the veterinarian for Taronga Zoo. He's very well known. He's written a couple of books. I tell him they're pretty average from time to time, but people seem to like them. So, yeah, he's pretty great. I... You've, changed since, <laughs> says, you've changed since you published your book. <laughs> I spent a little bit of time with Larry and the zoo when I was doing my work experience as a student in high school in Sydney and then again um, as a student in veterinary school and then um, many times throughout my veterinary career. So he sort of morphed from an idol to the opposite, <laughs> no, I'm joking, an idol to a mentor to um, a friend. So <laughs> Just a point of jest. Yeah. So it's been a really nice relationship. I mean, whenever I see him on TV, I'm like, oh, give me a break. But <laughs> other than that, he's had a huge influence on my career, his um, kindness and support over the years and his professional career as well is outstanding. So he's a great individual and I, I pay my respects to him and I'm very grateful for everything he continues to do for me. I mean, the other idol, it's not very original, isn't it? But Sir David Attenborough is pretty hard to pass up. I know he's not in the vet profession, but he could probably be an honorary member. Absolutely wonderful. So again, it is a great honor for me to now work for Fauna and Flora International, of which Sir David is a vice president. So, so that's also a nice sort of circle around too. 
Have you ever had the chance to meet him? Um, not yet, but I actually am hoping to have an opportunity shortly. So I'll report back to you on that. Oh yeah, like please, like <laughs> live vicariously through that. <laughs> I'll let you, you know. You can tell him about this podcast that you could jump on. And, <laughs> I'll you know, try and work it in. Thousands of vets. And, you know, just put in a word. <laughs> Whatever I can do. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I you know I remember his shows were so instrumental in just bringing climate. I mean, it felt like when the shows he was doing decades ago, maybe two, two and a half decades ago, he was talking about what was fairly... I was a child, I remember being petrified by that more than the other things that were on TV. You know, you had the AIDS pandemic or epidemic that was happening. Um, you had the Cold War sort of petering out, but tensions were still there. You had We had Northern Ireland, and the, but it was David Attenborough. Some, some of the shows were very uplifting and really inspiring. Some of them about the planet particularly were, were really I find them quite depressing and they are and that's a hard thing to do I mean balance that optimism with the reality of the situation I think it is something that he does really well I completely agree and some things just aren't able to be navigated around the climate situation is a disaster and it's very troubling I agree it was a very depressing watch but um very impactful as well so he's done a great job over his career just balancing that interest and engaging audience from all different walks of life and um, inspiring them. So I think it would be completely impossible to measure the amount of lives and careers that he's had an influence on. Okay. I'd like to just sort of talk for a bit to, to start with about perhaps as a structure for this conversation, more around the conservation work and then your book, and then perhaps we can move on to the work in sort of inspiring next generation a little bit. But first of all, I wondered... Lord Howe Island, when did you decide? You grew up in this fantastic place or spent time when you were a child being influenced by it. Australia is, it always feels like an incredible place. I always say this, if you've not had the chance to visit, visit. But on the front line of climate catastrophe, in many ways, such a, an arid place and bears the brunt of so much change. And, all, you know, the smaller lowing islands in the South Pacific are just really on the, the front line of, of the bad stuff that's happening, not just in the pipeline, but happening now. But without kind of diving down into that rabbit hole too much, I'm keen on, like, when did you really nail on, I'm going to go down this route of conservation? Like, what were the, the pivotal moments for you that sort of bounced your, your career ball in this pathway? That's a really good question. So aside from Lord Howe Island, it would probably be the year I spent abroad in Africa before I started university. So in that year, I wanted to go and see something completely different. I wanted to go to Africa, as a lot of people do. And I wanted to see a bit about the vet profession, but sort of how it tied into the conservation world and where veterinarians could apply their skills in that space because that really was what was of interest to me, even though I didn't even know it was a thing. So I guess I was going to find out is it a thing? And I shadowed vets, I shadowed rangers, I spent time in local communities and just had such a, I suppose, life-changing year, not to overuse that expression too much, but it was. And then during my undergrad in veterinary school, I made a conscious effort to get involved in conservation work and do a bit of study at zoos and whatnot and learn some more about it still. And then I think I was pretty set on my path, although this is nearly 10 years ago, so it still wasn't very clear how much of a thing it was. I mean, now you can go on social media and 
look up, I don't know, Wildlife Vet and see these 50 different examples of people doing great stuff and get all this inspiration. But in my time, we didn't have that. And also we didn't really have access to all of these people that could tell us about different career paths. And in university, we were really heavily geared to becoming small animal vets or equine vets or livestock. So I was sort of having a bit of a crisis and I didn't know where I would fit and if I was going down the right path, which is why I used my externships really selectively to try and study these people's careers essentially and see where I might like to be. And then I made a pact to myself after vet school, I would spend the first five years out saying yes to every opportunity that I could and using that time to really explore the, the diversity of veterinary medicine, particularly in relation to conservation. So basically taste testing all these different roles and seeing which one might fit or porridges, Goldilocks. I think that's an analogy. So yeah, the first five years took me on a bit of a whirlwind, which I absolutely loved and we can get into it if you like. But um, at the same time, I was still doubting myself because my friends were taking more traditional routes and safer routes and started to come a time where I was thinking, oh, should I be doing something more normal? But I was just, this is the reason I became a vet and I was so passionate about it and I thought there has to be a way. So I kept exploring and ended up sort of slotting into where I am now, which you did a pretty thorough job of covering in the intro. So thank you for that. <laughs> God bless the internet. <laughs> There's a few threads I'd like to pull on there. Um, this is where we just go off piste and Great. ignore okay. all the questions. <laughs> this, is, this is why it's fun. You mentioned interesting words that popped out to me there, this crisis, a sort of career crisis, this pathway crisis, and then the sweet shop or the Goldilocks, you know, taste test on a career. I love that. Talk to me a bit more about this sort of existential crisis you experienced. Like, where were you on your journey at that point? And then maybe I ask because people experience things like this fairly frequently, and especially the feeling of not belonging. And I've... You know, I'm on the record on my opinions on the mislabeling of that and how it cripples people from then just, you know, you, you said something else interesting there. You, you didn't really know if you'd be doing something more traditional. And I just think that that sort of sense of, oh, everybody else and thinking somebody else has taken a $150,000 job and is now specializing and aren't they amazing? And you think, well, but if you do that, you're not an Instagram repairing monarch butterfly wings. And if you're not doing that, then like a whole lot of joy was lost, not just to the monarch butterfly, but the whole freaking world <laughs> who saw that post. By the way, if you've not seen that post, that is like the, she's got the cutest post and the most awesome piece of surgery <laughs> on Instagram. So talk to me a bit about the, the crisis. How did you experience that? And then could you perhaps talk to us about what were you telling yourself and how did you navigate your way through that? And I suppose there's a bit of a premise there that might not actually be true, but you know, have you resolved it? No, that is a really good question. And I think I agree with your sentiments. I think a lot of people go through this, particularly in the veterinary profession. And I have a few thoughts on that. But from my own experiences, it probably, it's hard to pinpoint down when it started and when, if at all, it, it's ended. But it has changed over time. And I first noticed it, this feeling of suddenly maybe questioning if I was taking the right steps, maybe second or third year of vet school. Again, I think because I didn't think too hard about it initially entering vet school. I was like, right, I'm going to need good marks. I'm going to go to vet school. This is what I'm going to do. So it's pretty simple to know what to do in terms of if you're a bit of a type A, you like to maybe have a bit of a recipe laid out or the steps to follow. So that was pretty straightforward in terms of getting to that stage. And then in vet school, I was really enjoying it and made great friends. And I was really sort of stimulated by the topics. It was great, although challenging, so not to brush over that. But then I started noticing they were all about 
domestics and farm animals and I appreciate the basics or the fundamental skills that we need to learn and you need to be equipped for all of this. It was more of the emphasis on career pathways and where you can go and there was never any discussion about anything else but I thought this is the Doctor of Veterinary Medicine it's a very well respected degree it's a scientific degree you come out with postgraduate qualification with all of these different skills that are applicable clinically but also in all these different spaces so I thought there has to be more than this but I felt rightly or wrongly that maybe I was the only one thinking like that so I started to think I've come into the wrong spot and maybe not with people who share my aspirations they share all of my values and they're some of my best friends in the world but they're maybe going towards different pathways and they've maybe been lined up a bit better to follow those pathways whereas I feel a bit on my own so again that's where I lent on externships and I tried to find people particularly like Larry that were in the field that I could sort of see how they got to their respective careers and um, I started to join the dots a little bit, but it was a really challenging time and uh, I didn't know what I was doing or if I'd made the right decision. And that's the first time I had those questions pop up in my life. Over time, since I've graduated, I've slowly found my spot. But again, the feelings cropped up early in my career. Am I taking the right steps? And I think going back to this type A thing, which I think a lot of vets are, particularly that want to, for people in the veterinary profession that want to enter wildlife and conservation, there are an abundance of ways to do so and the field desperately needs people's skills and contributions. So I'm an advocate for encouraging people to follow their interests if that's where they are. But I think where people tend to get stuck, myself included, was there's no recipe to follow after vet school. No wildlife vet's career is exactly the same. If you want to go and become a specialist surgeon, you usually know what to do. You probably do an internship or two. You'll do a residency, you'll sit your boards, you'll get a job and then bang, you're a surgeon. So super challenging, way above what I'd be able to do definitely but the steps are there and it's clear so there's nothing to follow becoming a wildlife vet and that was intimidating to me initially and since that stage I've come to realize I see it as a really big plus actually because it means there are so many different ways that you can enter the field and that you can contribute and so that's what I really like to share with students now I know we'll touch on that later probably but I think rather than seeing it as a daunting element it's just encouraging to know that whichever steps you take and whichever path you decide to take in the conservation space there's definitely some way that you can contribute and a role that will will suit you and benefit from your presence so those are my thoughts on that. I've noticed a trend in amongst conservation vets so those in, interested in that is you guys like to break stuff. <laughs> do you think so? How so? What do we do? Yeah no I mean like no, and I think it's, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know that's a generalization and I don't, it's, it's, I don't know enough of you well enough, but just looking at a few of you and I've gotten to know a few of you better in the last year or two, I'm starting to see that as a pattern. I think it maybe is a necessity in the space because people aren't listening, people aren't paying attention. Yes. What you're experiencing as there isn't a pathway into this thing. And, you know, you mention in, in your book and in your writings and in your postings, the interconnectedness of things, which I, you know, is, is so abundantly clear and obvious. And yet we're dogged and held back by the short term thinking, whether it's in political cycles or just in the day to day family life, like Absolutely. there's stuff we must have. And it's there's the easy button or there's the hard button. And we were talking beforehand about you know, you're, you and your husband have a, a beautiful daughter who's coming up to year of age, you know, and it's hard. And, and sometimes the easy thing to do is, is the thing that you do, because frankly, you're hanging on by your fingernails. And every family, every human experiences this in every moment of every day. And in that short termism, convenience, consumerism, call it what we want, 
we're making choices that have real impacts because it's connected in the oh, reverse cycle exactly. back to nature, right? This massive sort of overproduction, overconsumption cycle, it's it's all connected. It's contributing to the destruction of the natural world or the, the growing encroachment that we live in proximity to wildlife. I mean, and then there's people that say, why are we interfering with wild animals and doing all of this stuff? And, and I get it on face value. I really do. I understand. But that's unfortunately not the reality of the situation. We've meddled with nature so much and continue to do so that we have a moral obligation to also meddle, quote unquote, when things go wrong that are human driven so I probably guess that drives a lot of our work and it's sad but true state of affairs yeah and I th I, that's where I wonder if that's why there is the need to break stuff you know I I recently saw and, and really the the notion didn't come to me until maybe last week and I was I was watching a video with a guy who's it's like this the, the opposite end of the spectrum of life and morals to where you exist I do because this this is a video of an investment banker <laughs> yeah okay and this is what they do they're like you know the, the financial system is broken and so we're just going to break stuff and when they break stuff there's very real world impact oh, Dave, I'm so, they're breaking stuff I'm so about it. We've, we've got to make a scene basically and I'm not that's not really sort of my natural what I'm about I'm an introvert much to everyone's shock and I'm a homebody as well so somehow this homebody introvert has found themselves working out in the field and talking to a lot of people which was initially very uncomfortable for me but thanks to Toastmasters and a few practices and some horrible friends who are no longer friends asking me to do wedding speeches I forced myself to get better at it and I thought you know what if these causes do need a spokesperson I'll just put myself aside and I'm happy to do that and join in the chorus because there are people singing from the tower tops in all these other different fields and a lot of the time some of the real crises aren't getting attention so yeah I'm not afraid to make a bit of a scene um, stir the pot and break some things if necessary because I think a lot of things could do with breaking and then fixing Right, and if you don't break stuff, you have to, because the world is breaking at the moment, and this is necessary to do. Absolutely, and you need to speak up. I mean, I could talk for days about this, but just a small example on that is that, you know, people just to bring it back to my space, people posing with wildlife for selfies or people keeping big cats and in sanctuaries and, and things, all of these sort of questionably ethical things that are happening. And then this gets promoted and shoved down our faces all the time. And that's contributing to things like the wildlife pet trade. But conservationists and wildlife vets have traditionally stood back from the spotlight. They're too busy doing their work. They're too busy in the field or in the lab working on different science research papers and whatnot. But no, you need to, you need to also meet the volume of the opposing forces. So you need to have speak up for what you're doing and for your work and why it's important and what are the issues it's facing, or you need to get someone who's going to speak up for you. And I think, I think, for example, some things like really good zoos are doing a better job of that, at communicating their work and, in my opinion, why they're essential good zoos in society today in preventing further extinction. So rather than quietly going about that, talk about it, share your work and um, be proud of it and get people on board to support you in that. But I've gone off on a major tangent. I see what you see when we leave the script, Dave. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm looking at the script going, it's nowhere near it. No, no, and it's completely fine. I mean, I, I think, and I'll pull us back to the script just because I, I do want to focus on your book. And I wondered if you could, first of all, my first question on that is really what inspired you to write the book? And then I wonder if you could share some, what are the insights in the book for you? I remember when I, I did my book and there's certain bits of it where just I'm like, this is this here, this, I mean, all of it, you go, oh, this is my favorite chapter until you're <laughs> through the editing process and you think, I just want I to hate burn all this of these chapters. I hate it. Never talk to this me again about it. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. If I never see it again, process. that'd be too, too. <laughs> 
<laughs> it, it really is. So it's out there, and I, I get the pain that you've gone through to publish that. So I just think massive kudos to anybody that writes a book pre-chat GPT. Yours <laughs> is a legend after that question marks arise. So I wonder if you could perhaps share the, the motivation behind it for you personally, and then what insights from for you are the most important as the author? I suppose the motivation behind it comes down to wanting to encourage people to enter this world with me, to hopefully inspire them with some of the stories from it and to encourage them to know that there's a role that we all play, a really important one, and some tips for how or some guidelines for how we can go about that or where action is most needed, I suppose, to phrase it better. So that was my inspiration. It has or it had evolved a lot since my initial concept. So publishers came to me I said okay right I want to talk about this but I want to do it anonymously and you can change my name I won't use any photos and I won't have jungle doctor or anything I just want the stories to be out there in people's hands so they can see the flip side of what's happening on the front line of conservation and the environment and species protection around the world and the publishers basically said okay I hear you um, but no it's going to have your <laughs> name on it and it's going to basically be through the lens of your experiences I was like okay well I'm definitely not going on the cover. And next minute, you can see how well I went with my negotiation skills there. But <laughs> anyway, I guess the point of that is that it was absolutely worth it to me to share these stories from the field and encourage people to either maybe want to enter it themselves when they're a bit older or to take action in their local communities or to go and visit and support some of these ecotourism ventures. I mean, go and see the gorillas if you have the means and time and resources because that in itself is a really great example of a really successful conservation project in action that tourism is supporting. So those are my goals with the book and that's why I went about it, even though it was hugely uncomfortable, not just to write, but to promote as well. And uh, I painfully learned after the publication date about the concept of a ghostwriter. But anyway, <laughs> you live and you learn. Yeah, ghost, ghostwriting, I don't know. I don't know. No, I know. I'm very I mean, glad yeah, that I wrote it myself that's cheating, and had that it? process. It's, cheating. <laughs> it's very, very rewarding. And I, I wouldn't want anyone else to tell the story or to tell my story. So no, it was painful, but worthwhile. Yeah, exactly, exactly. How long did it take to, from concept to publishing? From concept, a lot of it I wrote um, on my year, didn't write, a lot of it I kept a diary with me and made notes during my year away in Africa after university, and I kept that up for the few years after. And then the actual writing process was about a year and a half, including all the editing and, and just being absolutely slammed by my publisher and editor, and do it again, <laughs> no, <laughs> change this, so things like that. <laughs> It's a wrenching procedure, isn't it? It is. So, that, I mean, literally that's years. So, so for anyone who's interested in, A, it takes time. B, keeping a diary, journaling, things like that are so, so important. Um, Claire, I'm going to take us down another rabbit hole for, for a second. And that is, if you're keeping a, a diary journal, this, this is something actually, aside from the amazing photography and storytelling on, on your Instagram page, one of the things that always strikes me is how totally polarizing, not all of the posts, but particularly when you're looking at rhinos and things like that, the, the, the sort of dehorning to, in order to prevent poachers or remove, reduce the, the financial reward or imperative or motivation for, for that animal to be slain in order to get its horn by poachers really polarizes people. And, I, and I'm not, I mean, I'd love to talk more about not the furore around that that you seem to in, in not enjoy, but experience. But actually, we'll talk about some of the conservation projects that are closest to your heart in a second. But I'm actually interested, a couple of things that have 
coming up you know you're introverted you've mentioned getting into Toastmasters for building up your public speaking the challenge of writing a book and sharing your very personal inner journey are all very uncomfortable things for you and that I'm sure for a lot of people listening would be like lots of vets are quite introverted Mm, and you've pushed yourself out of that space I'd love for you just to talk a wee bit more about that process but on the flip side of that and specifically referencing the keeping of a journal and you've done it for posterity as opposed to any mental well-being benefits. I don't provide. Right. So I wondered, with a very public persona on uh, social media comes certain downsides as well. The upside is exposure. The downside is there's a lot of crazy people who want to throw rocks at you for various reasons. How have you managed that process? And, you know, we talk about mental health a lot in veterinary medicine now and you're you're very keen to reach out and work with next generation of vets. And I would consider you next generation of vets as well, as I'm getting grayer in the head and longer in the tooth. So I wonder, I'm not sure there's a specific question in there, but it's really just the process of pushing outside of your comfort zone and staying mentally together in a very challenging environment. It's been a long evolution, really. I mean, if I look to where I am now with some things that I'm engaging in, or Dave, even having this conversation maybe 10 years ago, I wouldn't even be able to fathom it, really. It came on quite abruptly, my sort of hesitation to be in the spotlight or anything. I was giving a speech in my final year of vet school to about eight students about cows. I can't even remember it. And all of a sudden I got really hot. I couldn't breathe. I went bright red. I was presenting with my best friend and she's like nudging me, like pull it together. I'm like, Nikki, no, I'm not pulling it together. I need to sit down. Like I'm not feeling well. So I don't know what that was about. Probably just the stress of final year, but it built from there. So It was just showing up in all different places when I had to present rounds when I was doing an internship or when I had to even say the slightest thing or think about talking to someone. And I guess this was in direct opposition of of what at the current time I was building. So I was sharing some of my experiences in vet school online. I was sharing some of my experiences as a new vet. I was enjoying writing things like articles and blog posts and sharing my passion for this. And all of a sudden it was in direct opposition of my newfound deep-rooted phobia of talking to more than two people. And that was a really painful process to come out of. I'm not going to lie. It's probably been a conscious thing over the past eight years that I've actively worked on. And yeah, as we talked about before, that's involved things like Toastmasters and taking on like maybe talking to little podcasts or when it comes to the big ticket items, things I can't avoid, like uh, the book when I was offered the book deal, things like that. I consciously have to tell myself a few things and have to say, go and say yes to opportunities. Where do you want to be in five to 10 years? Are you going to be happy that you did this or regret it? As in, is it going to be worth sort of the emotional turmoil and anxiety leading up to it? And maybe what advice would you give someone else that you were supporting? And I would tell that person to go for it. So um, I had that voice in the back of my head that was sort of very quietly trying to work over all of the loud thoughts of, no, you can't do this. You're a complete imposter. Um, You can't be talking about this. You know, there are vets that have been in the field 30 years with so much experience. Who do you think you are to be talking about this topic? And slowly, as I was talking to students, which is my biggest passion, and, and finding them take a few things away from what I had to share and getting some feedback online about people taking some things away from what I had to share, the confidence grew a little bit and my determination to stick at it and continuing to talk about it. The insistence of people like my publishers of putting me out there, which was probably the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done in my life, including some of the interviews after. I mean, I probably had nightmares for months leading up to that, but it's all helped me grow. 
And um, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to come into a space where if someone wants me to talk about something and I have the opportunity to share my passion for wildlife and if that can grow into something that gets more help to where it's needed, then I'm going to do it. But no, it wasn't a pleasant process. I don't think it's over yet. Every every day, I guess, a lot of people still have these thoughts, including myself, about, oh, like, who am I to be talking about this? Or can I do this? Or what am I doing? Just do something more normal. But um, no, I'm slowly getting more confident in my career and who I am and, and what I'm doing and most importantly, why I'm doing it. So yeah, it's an active process. Has being a mother affected that? And, and I don't mean affected it in a negative way. I mean, has it changed your thinking around, around that and your purpose and the work and your belonging in any way? Yes, it has. I think it's driven me more and inspired me more. I mean, I, of course, want to leave the world better for my daughter, Matilda, and for all of the incoming generations. And it's really, I guess, made me see things through a new lens. It's also made some things hurt more. As you said, a lot of things that I put out there are really polarizing and controversial. We don't need to get into the specifics of dehorning, but it's a good example. And I understand it's really graphic to look at. So naturally it divides people about why are we doing such a thing? And what that results in is me getting all sorts of comments from every side of the spectrum and lots of messages too. And sometimes those since becoming a mother are a little bit hurtful. I don't tend to engage with people that have hurtful things to say, but they do impact me a little bit more. I'm not sure why that is it, but, um, but it's true. But I mostly try to engage with people actually. People come and they have a lot of genuine questions. They're pretty concerned about what's happening and they ask legitimate questions. I'm not gonna brush them off as if they should know what's happening. So I really take my time to respond to everyone that I can that's inquiring about it and hopefully educating them about the situation. But the people, of course, there'll be some others out there, maybe more wild cards and some people just aren't worth engaging with. It's not gonna achieve anything for anyone. It's how you tell one from the other. How do you tell one from the oh, other? I get it wrong sometimes. I often struggle with that. <laughs> I struggle with that a little bit. <laughs> I don't have an answer for you, that one. That one I'm afraid, Dave. <laughs> it's not a perfect process. What level of crazy is kicking a football at you? And I suppose a, a, a last question in this sort of area, maybe just to, to round things off a little bit, is, you know, if you were to look back when you had that crisis and you wondered, you know, I'm... Am I taking this route now? How do you perceive to be stacking up? And I know this isn't a healthy game to play. Well, but... I think about that quite a lot, actually. And Are you happier than other people? The thing is, I'm not sure if this is a, an appropriate thing to say. I've never really been someone to sort of be openly proud of achievements and I've sort of shied away from those things. But I sort of have a quiet reflection and I had one recently and I just feel really happy with where everything is. I feel really fortunate to have the career that I do. It's a great balance of clinical and non-clinical work. It's heavily involved in conservation. I get to interact with students every day and maybe have a small part of shaping their future directions or helping them along the way, or I suppose paying it forward, like what people like Larry Volganis did for me. So I just feel so incredibly grateful every day. I guess I think about the future a little bit sometimes with Matilda. Um, a lot of my work involves traveling. What will that look like down the track? But I've made it work up to this point and we have a strong family unit and uh, I'm sure we'll make it work. But there are unknowns. But I'm incredibly happy in this space. And that's one reason that I like talking to students as well, because I know there's a lot of disillusionment in veterinary medicine. And part of that's rightly placed there are a lot of challenges in our profession, but there's a lot of wonderful things you can do with it and find your place 
whether that be leaving it, I support that as well. But I think a lot of people perhaps don't have the opportunity to see the diversity of this profession and exactly what you can do with this career. And that's exactly the heart of what I like getting to. Uh, so let's come on to the clinical stuff because that'll be two nice little breaks. We'll be clinical and then we can talk a bit more about the, the non-clinical work with the other organisations you're involved. Maybe because it's such a vast area we could talk about, I'll let you kind of lead it out a bit. But are there particular things, projects that you've worked on? Like what are the highlights so far for you of your career or, or what are the best best stories or learnings you've been able to draw from your career? You know what, I'd almost think that changes from year to year. And I guess that's probably a good thing, isn't it? But my answer would have been different a year ago and different again a few years ago. At the moment, reflecting back on the past about eight years or so as a vet, give or take, there's been a few. It's hard to deny that the bushfire period in Australia at the end of 2019 and 2020 wasn't very impactful for me. So for a bit of background, I'd moved back to Australia in uh, November to Kangaroo Island specifically. And then 60% of the island burnt down in very early January and the bushfires actually started in December. So it was horrific. We evacuated our home one night. Um, it was my poor German husband's horrible induction to Australian summers. But we back, packed up the car and we left and every town on the island had been evacuated to my town and people were told to go down by the water. So it was a really impactful time. Met by the following day where a makeshift wildlife hospital was established in the centre of the island and then all of a sudden we found ourselves seeing some really, really horrific things. There were a lot of heartwarming cases and the way that the community came together and, and people helped out and pitched in and brought animals from the fire grounds to us. But it was a pretty horrific time, one that has really had a huge impact on me. And I think that was also a bit of a shift as well, because I'd come home from a number of years overseas. I was not really thinking too much about Australian wildlife. Then just this sort of once in a lifetime, hopefully, event happened, but to be seen. And uh, it really sort of reignited my love for my local wildlife. And Australia, actually, for those who don't know, has the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world. I mean, how is that acceptable for a first world country? It's just absolutely disgraceful. And uh, slowly action is starting to happen, but we'll see. And so I guess that redirected part of my focus and reignited my love for Australia. Also balancing that is my time in Africa. So wildlife work, at least the wildlife work I do, isn't necessarily too complex or challenging. A lot of it, I guess, is triage and first aid, but uh, it's incredibly rewarding and there's something very magical about Africa. I don't need to go into it for anyone who's been there. They know what I'm talking about. And to be working with species that are critically endangered and just absolutely awe-inspiring. Like a couple of weeks ago, I was in South Africa doing a dehorning mission. We worked with nine critically endangered black rhino and there's something very humbling about being in their presence and also a huge juxtaposition between what you're there doing with the sound of chainsaws running and helicopters flying overhead and army officers there with, with AK-47s. I mean, it's a very sort of out-of-body experience from a certain perspective, but I guess those experiences directly in the field have been the most impactful on my work. But one funny uh, clinical note for you, Dave, is that I worked, I did a locum stint in Galashields in Scotland a number of years ago, and that was with Melanie Broad, who apparently um, knows you. So there you go. Mel, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, it's definitely been, I suppose, a pathway with clinical work. I came out of uni, I did a year abroad, I did a rotating internship in small animal medicine when I came home to keep my pathways open in case I wanted to pursue a residency. And I did some GP and locuming work with wildlife and small animals and then found my way into the field. So it's been a, a whirlwind of a career, but um, a really wonderful one. 
it's an incredible pathway. I wonder the, you know, the number of questions you get about the rhino, how effective are the programs being? I, one of the other guests I'm hoping to get on the show, I don't know if you know uh, Mahesh and Jemu and Jamil. Yes, not personally, but I do. They love breaking stuff too. But Jemu's uh, story, I think he, he looked after, I, I mean, forgive my ignorance, the specific species of rhino that, that was lost, but he was the, the keeper of the last of of that that species. Of the northern white rhino. I think it was northern white rhino, yeah. And such a sad, sad story. And how effective are programs at managing dwindling numbers being? And what are the things that, you know, what are things that are being most effective? Like, what's the impact of the work you're doing and the tracking and the ability to, you know, vast, vast territories that these animals roam? I know, it's such unique challenges faced by conservationists working in the field with endangered animals that are across a space as large as Greater Kruger that can be seen from space. So it's definitely not without its challenges. But the work itself has actually proven to be quite effective when we're talking about dehorning rhinos to protect them from being poached. There are, of course, the odd cases of rhinos still being poached or shot that poachers have come across that have already been dehorned, be it out of spite or so they don't want to track them again. But these, in our experience, are few and far between. But one cool stat for you is the reserve we were just on, the Luli Nature Reserve, two weeks ago, opens into Greater Kruger, one of the most beautiful areas you've ever seen. Great population of rhino. Baluli undertake all dehorning. So they call us, we come in and we dehorn their population with the wonderful team, Dr. Ben and Joel. You need to get them on your podcast soon if you haven't already. Um, Do it. Down in South Africa. So they're just absolutely wild what they do. And it's a really uh, big privilege to be involved. But Baluli started dehorning in 2019. The poaching pressure on rhinos has always been there, but it sort of exploded out of nowhere around 2012 or so and continued to grow until about 2015-16 remained a bit stagnant, even maybe came down a little bit, but the population of dehorned rhinos was growing, so that might be a little bit confounded. However, uh, saw another spike during the pandemic. So to rewind a little bit, Baluli Nature Reserve started dehorning in 2019. In the few years prior to this, they'd lost 60% of their rhino herd to poaching. After 2019, when they started irregular dehornings, which are every sort of 18 months, They hadn't lost any until three weeks ago. We lost one a week before we got there, um, a mother heavily in calf that was shot and her horn harvested. So that's pretty gutting um, from a personal perspective that we weren't there in time. There's some whispers around that when you apply for a permit to dehorn, the word gets out pretty fast, so you better make sure you're there quickly. And it probably looks like that's what happened there. But other than that, I think it demonstrates that dehorning is incredibly effective. They've seen similar results in all other areas that they're dehorning. And you just must make sure to combine it with appropriate security. So you mentioned rangers and anti-poaching patrols, things like that. So when you combine all of these things in our toolbox, for lack of a better word, you come out with a pretty good outcome. Although I guess it's not without its challenges. Again, it just seems to be shifting the poaching pressure elsewhere to KwaZulu-Natal at the moment in South Africa. So you almost need to elevate all of your anti-poaching measures at the same time. Yeah, it's so, you know, the ethics as well then of people needing to earn income, not just in conservation, but in all sorts of industries or, you know, manners of whether it's drug trade or trafficking in rhino horn or tusks or anything like that. What do you do to address that? Well, like, where are the, where are the sort of conflicts? You know, and the, when you see an Instagram post, you see the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the horn. Yeah, and what's the story? What's it, the history? Simple. What's the complex? Right, but the whole ripple-down thing, do you engage with that kind of, you know, the the whole social 
engineering bit behind yes, when you're working in conservation as well. And that's a great, I guess, a good segue too, Dave, because that sort of leads into a bit of the non-clinical work, particularly with Fauna and Flora International. And it's this I found really interesting. I mean, keep your options open is one of my biggest pieces of advice, because if someone told me in vet school I'd be doing non-clinical work half the time, I would have thought, what a bust. And now I just absolutely love it. It's incredible. And I get to work with people across all different disciplines. But I've gone off in a tangent. I, it is very complex, these social structures behind conservation in general. I mean, what conservation needs is money and awareness. Awareness is growing. A lot of people are doing their part on their front. Conservation organisations are speaking up. And I think people are pretty aware about the situation in general that we're in, that it's not good. The depths of that um, might vary from person to person. But what the conservation world doesn't have is money and what it needs is money. So what you need to do, and this is a whole other podcast for itself is you need to turn conservation into a business so you need it to generate income generate revenue and provide jobs and provide sustainable living scenarios and livelihoods for people living on the front line of conservation so that their efforts are concentrated on keeping the animals and the natural areas as they are as opposed to the destruction which is where the money currently comes from so clearing the land for farming that's how they get their income for one example. So we need to basically place a bounty on the head and an interesting conversation about that is with the examples of the rhinos is the discussion around the legalization of the horn. Now I'm not an economist, I don't know what that would do. The hope is that it would drop the demand um, and while also providing revenue for people keeping rhinos to fund conservation efforts like dehorning and more rangers and anti-poaching patrols. So it makes sense logically, but how it would play out in real life is yet to be seen and a very dicey topic indeed. But it's things like that or carbon credits. So farmers in Guatemala that are keeping their land as is rather than destroying it for banana plantations. So they need to be paid. So this all needs to be turned into a sustainable business model. And that's what conservation organisations like Fauna and Flora International are working on. And that's the only way we're going to achieve the results we need and the sustainability because you can't have organisations like FFI as an example to go into these places, set up a project, run it for 10 years and then disappear and it falls flat. I mean, that's not serving anyone. You need to put the power in the local community's hands. You need to pay them to do it and they need to show us how to look after the land best and tell us what they need to do that. It comes back to that interconnectedness, not just between the ecosystem, but the financial system as well. That throws up all sorts of ethical yeah, questions. It does. How do you... Yeah, because rather than subsidy isn't a business and subsidy is, it sub subsidy is money, but how do you then have people engaged in work of meaning of, of you know community formation of exactly you know, people want stuff you need stakeholder buy-in you need the communities to not just be paid for it but they need to be invested in this and again coming back to the gorillas i think that's a really good example i mean the mountain gorilla population in uganda rwanda and the drc was plummeting it looked like we would lose them now it's turned a corner and it's gone back up again since the establishment of the international gorilla conservation program which started in the 80s and that's really fascinating stuff and what they've done the community's been at the heart of that so the community used to go in and destroy the forest um, for firewood and they used to poach the gorillas for bushmeat and set snares to catch small antelope and whatnot that would also catch gorillas so it was a hot mess of a situation what people conservation organizations did they came in and they basically got the community on board with gorilla conservation and the bottom line is why why would we want to do that well because we can generate you more revenue from tourist income 
come and support your livelihoods and um, do something good as well and, and keep your community and your environment as is and manage it well. And in turn, that will provide for local hospitals to be built and clinics and food and markets and everything and all of all of the stuff so that's been a really fascinating I suppose pilot project that's since been repeated in different parts of the world and yeah I think you need you need to provide revenue but you also need to get their buy-in as well otherwise you just it's not going to work and that's I suppose you know tourism was the thing that stuck out in my mind there is the you know ecotourism of of a sense and that that has its challenges as well then with travel and with climate things but exactly i mean it needs to be really strictly monitored i mean same thing on lord how they restrict the number of tourists with the gorillas it's a really interesting dynamic because of course they're susceptible to human diseases and vice versa and respiratory ones are one of the most deadly to them so that is problematic and a challenge that needs navigating but things like health screen temperature checks certain distance from the gorillas and limiting the number of people in the park at the moment seems to be finding the nice balance between generating the revenue needed to support the community to also support the maintenance of the park and the protection of the gorillas while not i suppose exposing them to diseases they, they struggle uh, i mean obviously covid people couldn't really travel but people could get covid everywhere were there impacts on wildlife and primate populations from that you did, i didn't really hear much of that yeah there were impacts there were deaths from covid definitely i mean it's not been as significant as ebola which has been steadily wiping out mountain gorilla populations over the past 30 years and there's a lot of crossover between human outbreaks and gorilla outbreaks being that human outbreaks are frequently followed outbreaks in gorilla populations the last one was most famously ignored by a leading veterinary epidemiologist that was signaling that there were cases of Ebola in the gorilla population and that jumps especially when people come into the forest and basically hunt gorillas for bushmeat so it's a really interesting situation but yeah gorillas and chimpanzees in the area are susceptible to COVID, Ebola but some of the most deadly things to them are the common cold and flu so people just coming in with a bit of a sniffle that's enough to wipe out troops of gorillas so and then I guess that plays into the interesting ethical questions around the management of wildlife and is it ethically right to vaccinate them against preventable diseases? Is it ethically right to not vaccinate them against preventable diseases if we're exposing them to that? So that's provided a really hot topic of debate at the moment, I suppose. And Jane Goodall sort of set off a nuclear bomb um, in I think the 60s or 70s when she hid polio vaccines in bananas for the chimps in Uganda. So it's been interesting and it's been a topic of discussion for a long time and one that I'm really interested in too. In some ways, as we're talking, the notion comes to me that the interconnectedness is the problem. It's the truth, but it's the problem since if we all lived in our local communities and ate our local foods and worked together, we wouldn't have these problems because we wouldn't need I think, cobalt I to think get dug the out problem, of the ground for a phone. But I'm hoping, it might be my optimistic side talking, that it will also be the solution. So you also need communities and people and animals working together to come up with the solution. But yeah, I mean, one thing always is everything's interconnected. You mentioned the cobalt and the minerals being dug up for electric cars and mobile phones and whatnot. Isn't that interesting that we've all been sort of pushed into electric cars and that's wonderful in terms of emissions and, and how great is that? But I wonder what impact we're going to see five, ten years down the track of all these sort of deep sea mining or large mining sites digging for rare earths in really protected ecosystems. So we'll have to watch that space. Mm, there's a lot beneath the surface that, that doesn't add up, isn't there? Are you saying I should run my old diesel banger for as long <laughs> as possible? Go for it. 
or just or just cycle. I I, I wore this T-shirt. Oh, I love that. Oh, Dave, that's awesome. So I could have worn that the other day. I came over last weekend for the Chelsea Flower Show. I did some work with FFI there. We have a gorilla garden, um, as it so happens to be. I should have worn that T-shirt. I love it. You Maybe have. we should have done I... this in person. Oh, mate, that would have been brilliant. Yeah, I got it from... No, I didn't get it from Kew Gardens, but it's their equivalent. They've got a place out in Sussex, which they did lovely winter wonderland walks in the evening. So I saw that and I thought, that's right up my boulevard. Sounds magic so and I love the show. For those of you that, that didn't, aren't seeing the recording, it says our future is botanic. <laughs> it's great. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Maybe that's going to be the cover photo for this discussion. Hot Maybe it should be. Would you like that? <laughs> I don't hate we it. Can make, don't hate we it. can make that happen. We can make that happen. Okay, so perhaps let's come on to the project. I mean, we could, I feel like we're just so scratching the surface of the amazing world of conservation and we could spend six hours talking about it. My strongest suggestion for you listening, if you're enjoying the conversation and you really want to dig in deeper to it, the best thing you could do is get a copy of The Jungle Doctor because not only will you get deeper, wonderful insight, you'll also be contributing towards these organisations, conservation organisations that Chloe supports and works with. So definitely go out and get a copy of that. I want to just shift focus, because I also want to be respectful of your time, onto the work you're doing in terms of helping next generation. And you've mentioned several times the sort of diversity that's available to us in veterinarians as a as a career option. And I'll I'll put my cards on the table just now. Like I I've loved practice, and for me that that was the right role. Though ironically, I'm not in in practice directly anymore, and and, and mostly try and help next generation vets love this profession as well. But tell me about your sort of passion for that, and, and we've got the sense of the weaving through vet school, the, the sense of perhaps not belonging and finding your place. Tell me about the work that you're doing now through the various organisations you work with to help empower the next yeah. generation or maybe I, free the next generation from the <laughs> yoke of clinical no, practice. No, not at all. Clinical practice has its place and a wonderful one at that. I have so much respect for clinical practice veterinarians. I mean, my grandfather was a vet. I unfortunately um, didn't get a chance to meet him, but... Yeah, I, I just, that's initially sort of what I, I looked at. I went and spent time with GP vets and my own time in clinical practice, not the, not in the least with Mel in Scotland. Dave, I've absolutely loved every minute. <laughs> what I was going to ask was, it wasn't wasn't Mel that put you off. Uh... <laughs> Funnily enough, now that I think about it, I didn't go back to practice after that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, look, I, the thing is, I think... Um, Clinical practice has its own challenges, just like wildlife work does. The thing that differs, I think, for new grads coming out, the pathways into practice and even into specialisations and residencies and livestock and equine, they're all pretty well mapped out. Of course, everyone can make their individual careers in that space, and that's so incredibly exciting about all of the avenues available to them. But just getting to that start point, I think there's a little bit more support of working out where do I get my feet in this space? Whereas in the wildlife world, it's like, what on earth am I doing? Like, where do I go? What do I do? Where, where, like, can I find a job? Or where do I make money? All of these questions pop up and you kind of see people that maybe already established in the space, but you don't really see the gray area in between and you don't know anything about it. Or again, at least these were my experiences in vet school quite a long time ago, or what feels like it, uh, and what the gray hairs on my head say. So maybe that's just motherhood. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, That does it. That definitely does <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, okay, well, I think I might stop at one then. But um, anyway, <laughs> anyway. yes, yeah, so I just felt like this 
I had this gap, something was missing. I didn't know what I was doing when I came out of uni. I knew I had a good degree, but not exactly how applicable it was to different spaces or even what the different spaces were. So yeah, as we talked about, I sort of went on this five-year adventure to taste test all these different pathways and find out exactly where I fit. And what I found in that is not only where I fit, but also exactly the breadth of veterinary medicine. And that's what I like sharing with students, uh, what they can do with their degree. So just remembering that you do have all of these qualifications sort of sublisted under the DVM or under the veterinary science. And you can apply those just like I have into a mixture of different careers, whether it be clinical in the wildlife space of which you can go down the zoo route, which is, I guess, a bit more established, or you can go work with wildlife if you have a bit of flexibility or somewhere in the middle, you can work in GP with a high volume of wildlife caseload and maybe in your free time engage in some extra courses or study, not that you have to, or some voluntary experiences or a veterinary mission like the ones I do with the rhinos while you're finding your feet. And really an important note on that, I think, is doing programs like yours, listening to podcasts, going to conferences and networking. I used to cringe at the thought of networking because it has these sort of like connotations, at least for me, that might just be in my head. But that's not at all what it is. It's about establishing relationships and connections with your peers, with your colleagues in quite a small profession and sharing knowledge and insight and pathways and assistance. So I don't find it a cringy word anymore. I actually think it's a really important thing to do. Sorry to interject, but I wanted to pull back to your mentor you originally mentioned, Larry. Larry. Perhaps you can, and, and as, before you've mentioned networking, that was the word that was flashing bright in my brain was, you know, the importance of networking, especially with the pathways not clear, even when it's clear, the importance of networking. And people, I think people, and, and this, is, this is such a strong encouragement to people listening, especially people who maybe don't feel like they've got the network yet, or they're very early in their career, or they're just a student, or whatever they are in their journey. I think one thing that, and I don't know if you've experienced this, Glee, but you, you don't notice people's perception of you changing over time like you just stay you yes and that's certainly how I feel in my career I've just I've just stayed me I still feel like in many ways like the 17 year old boy who walked into Glasgow University vet school and now here I am you know and we're nearly if I'm not nearly we are 30 years later than that day and I don't feel really that different yes I completely agree same with being an adult or a parent like I'm kind of like who's who's in charge here <laughs> give me a chance. I'm like it's me but no I agree you just you stay the same person in the mirror and on the inside or you think you do because the perception I mean it's, you see yourself every day right but outwardly you as you go through your career you accomplish things you have your wins you have your losers you've got your gongs you've got your scars and you gradually become something different in perception to the outside world. And I think like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin experienced it like that. They were nobodies and they came back and the world had completely changed around them and it, it drove them quite mad and, and some, you know. But as you grow in your skill set, particularly if you have any sort of public persona, you almost become, you know, you become very intimidating to people. And I think the point I'm trying to make here is that, that I don't think that most people who have public personas think of themselves in that way. And You're most of the not. people I know are really approachable and are really willing and generous yes. to give time and give advice to people and that encourage you to reach out. So back to Larry. I'm quite interested to hear about how you sort of fostered that relationship. You know, there was no pathway before you. So for the benefit of anyone who's maybe a little nervous about doing this, how did you approach Larry? How did that go? Like, really show us, like, what was the beneficial impact of that? Like, how did Larry help you in that time? 
Dave, you've hit on such a good point. I tell people that all the time to sort of don't be afraid to reach out to people, not only the value of networking, but also I think you'll find for the most part people are busy but very receptive and eager to help in any way they can, especially in a small profession like ours. I like to think it's quite supportive and collaborative. So you're very unlikely to be sort of hitting a brick wall there. Larry is a a great example. I mean, I first crossed paths with him when I was 15 and a high school student and then um, came back around in vet school. So what was that moment? Did you just see his work or see a talk or did you actually? Well, I, I kept tabs on him. I knew he was still at Taronga Zoo. I suppose everyone does. And I had his contact because when I left the zoo as a high school student, I asked for his contact to if I could let him know if I ever make it into vet school. So I was already thinking, how long would that be? About eight years sort of down the track, if I was ever so lucky to get into vet school. And I got into vet school and I wanted my commitment probably matched to Larry's disappointment. He's like, oh no, her again. So I sent him an email. Well, we'll be now <laughs> since you're bagging him out and podcasting. Yeah, okay. I'm going to send him the link for sure. So I sent him a message when I got into vet school. I was like, Larry, I'm sure you don't remember me. Uh, Taronga had a big impact on me. I've since done this and that. Now I'm in vet school. I didn't want anything from him. I just wanted to let him know. Um, and I was grateful for him giving me his email. That was a huge thing back in the day or for someone at that stage. So he replied and that was very exciting. And then towards the clinical year, I booked in at Taronga and got a spot there. So Larry, um, I'm now at my end of vet school. I'm coming to Taronga for a month next March. Can't wait to work under you. We had a great time working together during that final year externship. And I suppose we forged a closer relationship. I took on a bit of research. I asked him questions about that. And uh, I also enjoyed talking to him and we were able to broach other topics like his career and how he manages veterinary things with personal things. So getting a little bit more personal as well. And then when we left, I asked him for a reference, if he'd be happy to be a reference for me which he said yes. So over the years, that naturally brought us back together again when I'd be applying for a new job. I might ask Larry um, some things or if he had any recommendations for conferences or jobs or if he knew this person, um, would he be happy to still be a reference for me? And then as time goes along, it grows into a relationship where you feel the have the ability to call them and just have that support. So during the bushfires when Kangaroo Island was on fire, I called Larry on his phone. I was like, Larry, it's, it's terrible. Things have gone really badly. I'm going to go out to the front line. I'll be working in the hospital there. I don't know exactly what I'm doing with burns, Larry. I don't know about koalas. You're the Australian wildlife guru. Can you help me? So mentorship isn't just about clinical mentoring. In fact, it's been mostly not about that from Larry, but that was an example of just being able to reach out for whatever you need. And now I tell them all the time, Larry, I need you to come on my trips with students. I want them to meet you as well. I want you to teach me what I'm going to do with an orangutan, things like that. So it's grown organically over the years, but it does take a little bit of effort. You need to put that in at the early stage of your career. But as you said, I think people are very receptive and willing to help. I certainly am. Most people in their positions probably had a bit of a leg up themselves from time to time and probably want to pay that forward. So Yeah, I think the Larry thing is a really good example. But another good one, just to keep it short, cold calling. My role with FFI came about through networking as well. So I was researching my book. I saw a TED talk by this guy, Nick Bubb, about conservation in action through FFI, Fauna and Flora. And I sent him just a LinkedIn message, nothing intended, just saying I'm writing a book. I really enjoyed your talk. Thank you for sharing. We got talking. He found out I'm an Australian wildlife vet. 
fauna and flora were looking for someone to liaise with some of their donors in Australia, maybe build up the supporter base and communicate our work. And as a veterinarian, I had this sort of natural synergy or understanding of scientific processes and particularly conservation work in action. So not only was I able to share some of my experiences in the field, which perhaps made it more relatable, but I was also able to communicate why FFI's work is so important and some of the more finer details of some of our conservation projects. So he thought I'd be a good fit. And my role with FFI has evolved from that Australian consultant into sort of more broadly doing some work here in the UK and Europe and what a weird way to come come about but yeah networking just reaching out to people just with nothing intended or necessarily just I just wanted to thank you for this or thanks for your time or whatever it may be go for it I love that is there a good way to approach a mentor like what's a in terms of expectation or in terms of like, or maybe it's, maybe the negative of that question is a better question. Like, what is a bad way to approach somebody? Yeah, I think that possibly is an easier way to answer it because in terms of the positive way of, you might not always know your intention. That's the point of these relationships. If there's someone that you respect, keeping contact with them can be really beneficial. It can be a nice thing to do. Maybe later on down the track, you're able to provide something for them as well, but you don't know what your intentions are necessarily. And you shouldn't, your career should be wide open. You should be malleable and open to opportunities and possibilities. The negative of that is more relevant in terms of how you shouldn't approach them. So you should be always respectful of people's time. So these people are busy and probably very happy to help you, but probably don't come in with a million questions. Probably know where your relationship stands. So the closeness that you have should match the size of your ask if you do have an ask. So if you're very close to someone, you can probably ask them to be a reference or to pick up the phone and call someone for you and say a good word if they are thinking about you for a certain position or give you advice outside of their, in their personal time. If you just have a starting relationship with them, Maybe you have no ask. Maybe you just have a thank. Maybe you just wanted to share an update on your life. That's something I really enjoy. I sometimes have students emailing me being like, we spoke three years ago. I just wanted to let you know I've started vet school. Hope you're well. Maybe we can chat next year or something or when I'm coming into my clinical years. How wonderful. I will remember that person definitely. And in two or three years when they ask me for help with their clinical years, I will be there. However, if they've just come out of the blue now, I will always do my best to help them. But it's just that light touch relationship that you just need to foster and be aware of that can actually work wonders and take you the distance. Yeah, nice. I like that. Okay, so we've spoken a little bit about and any of these areas. I think if you want to expand upon any of these, um, and particularly Loop Abroad is kind of jumping out at me there, if you want to perhaps talk a wee bit more about about that as an organisation. But we'll come on to my sort of slightly goofier rapid-fire questions in a wee moment. But what have we not talked about? I can touch on Loop Abroad. It's something pretty special to me. I spend probably the bulk of my time on it, really. It's my full-time job, definitely. And then my clinical work is sort of supplements that and my fauna and flora consulting supplements that. But Loop Abroad and I came together about four years ago. I was just looking into taking students with me because I'd spent some time in Tanzania with a local Maasai community. And I started taking their local students on safari to see wildlife because a lot of people don't realize, but a lot of local people in Africa don't have the chance to see their wildlife because they're contained in national parks or private game reserves that have an entry fee. So this is cost prohibitive. And I saw a bit of a mismatch when I was there. I thought, how can we come in and ask these communities to contribute to conservation when they haven't even seen a giraffe or they're not afforded the opportunity to see their wildlife that we're asking them to help. So I started doing that. 
at the same time, I was having students ask me if they could maybe join me on some of these trips. And I was just figuring out what I was doing myself sort of six or so years ago. So I didn't yet have plans, but just as I started to move into planning to take students with me, Loop Abroad popped up and we decided to do it together. So they had been operating veterinary study abroad trips for students for the past sort of eight years before that, um, primarily to Thailand and South Africa and Australia and a few other really exciting places. And when I came on board, I sort of built upon that. So I developed out a few programs in Australia that I'm really passionate about, but particularly these ones fostering veterinary students who are aspiring to work in conservation so I wanted to give them the opportunities that I'd had and teach them some of the fundamental things that they would need to know from clinical skills right through to things that we've been talking about like networking and mentorship and also adding myself to their contacts if they ever need help there and also with the clinical skills also an academic side so providing lectures as well and these programs are usually about two weeks and hosted in different parts of the world And then I started developing out veterinary missions and these are really passionate. These are what I'm most passionate about. So the dehorning ones are our biggest ones and we do some elephant colorings and essentially it's a win for everyone. So the vets come and they get to contribute to a very noble cause in my opinion, but they also gain the clinical skills that are sort of maybe outside of their traditional day-to-day work and get to apply them in a different setting and a very rewarding one at that. The mission itself gets funded and this is something that wouldn't be able to happen. So these private game reserves that we work on don't have the funds to fund a dehorning effort. So that actually makes this work happen. And then I'm able to go along and work to teach the participants as well and engage them in this work and speak a little bit about the issues. So it's something I'm really passionate about and I love so much. And my work with Loop Abroad, be it non-clinical or clinical and with students or qualified veterinarians and vet nurses, the whole spectrum, I just absolutely love. And that's in, you're over in Europe just now, and that's principally your official title there is Director of Outreach, right? Yes, yes. I guess outreach to these different organisations that might be able to host us, or even outreach to universities and vet groups, student groups that want to come along with us. So all forms of outreach. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, some degree of curriculum development, so that it's, it's you know, it's an organised trip. You go out and you've got a set of, you know, here's the learning objectives, here's what you're going to experience and do. And you'll be contributing to something that is blending that thing you've spoken about already, which is conservation, but creation of some form of... Like a structure, yeah, revenue-generating structure. Yeah, structure, revenue that can also contribute to local livelihoods. Yeah, it's almost like a circular economy. So, I mean, they work largely as not-profit, that's the design, so they're just to fund the mission. So it's calculated pretty closely about what's exactly needed, and it's, it's essentially like a circular economy there that benefits the animals the participants and the community so it's really exciting and again not what I would have seen myself doing in veterinary school necessarily yet such a perfect fit and this is what I keep coming back to is keeping your options open staying broad and and being open to possibilities because you don't exactly know how your interests will evolve and I don't know if that's just me but I find us again generalizing maybe as type A's have a tendency to hold on to what we thought we wanted and our previous goals when we were 15 years younger 10 years younger five years younger our circumstances were changed we weren't a parent or we weren't this or we hadn't had that traumatic event like you change as a person so why can't your goals and aspirations change and sometimes I think that's hard to admit when something's not working or you don't want that anymore maybe you've become a a surgeon or you've gone through a residency you don't want that anymore as crushing as I'm sure that may be and I'm not trying to brush over the complexities it does take a certain amount of strength to recognize within ourselves when perhaps your interests have changed so just be open to that yeah or your interests just weren't well aligned with your 
skills or skills, your yeah. passion wasn't what you thought it was. Or the reality it's labeling, of isn't it, in some ways? It is. Yeah, right. It's external factors can change, internal factors can change. Um, sometimes in your control, sometimes not in your control. But your your choices, your labels, are totally in your control. Absolutely, I agree. How did you come to be involved? with uh, Loop Abroad in the first instance? They approached me. So um, I was starting up my student programs and they approached me and we had several long discussions and thought about how this might work and developed a great partnership that's been enduring over the past four years and hopefully many more to come. It's just, um, yeah, an unexpected, just absolutely love every element of the work from the students to the clinical work to designing the programs and it brings me a lot of joy. It comes back to, again, you know, you'd started to do something and someone networked out to you. and it It's all networking. And it's not something I ever thought I would have said. It's all networking. And I'm grateful for my small platform, I suppose, that's been able to expose me to certain opportunities. I never would have. Social media was another thing I used to cringe at. And I started my Instagram anonymously, actually, just to share this work that was happening. And for God, please not be the person that was the face of it. And again, that went really terribly for me. But you've just got to embrace these twists and turns in life and and recognize what's working and what's not. And um, yes, I sort of ran with it. And it's presented so many wonderful opportunities. And this is applicable to everybody, social media presence or not it's just an example of my pathway and hopefully a bit of a testament to taking those opportunities whether you think they align perfectly or not and just staying broad do you find yourself do you find instagram like is it something you can be on a lot or does it do you find it kind of like a a mental headspace that can be challenging to be as well yeah i know that a lot of people have had that experience i haven't really i haven't ever worked at it consciously it's only ever been something that I have enjoyed if I have ever gone through periods that I haven't enjoyed it I haven't shared anything it's never been like a forced presence in my life and I think that's maybe where um, it can differ for some people and so whether I've been lucky in that respect or if it's been curated in that way I'm not sure but I have quite a light touch relationship with it and as such it's been overwhelmingly positive despite I guess a lot of the abuse that I receive in my dms and whatnot but um yeah, it's just, um, it's been a really wonderful vehicle to share this work and I've, I've seen the positives to it and I've tried to not engage necessarily in the negatives and if there's been too overwhelming a negative sort of feeling about it, then I'm not afraid to just put it down for a little bit. I'm not attached to it. It's such an incredible feed. In the world of social media where there's so much kind of, you know, tooting your own horn and, and I think falseness, you know, you guys have to check out jungle underscore doctor because the posts are just fantastic and you're spotlighting, you know, not just the fantastic work, but the fantastic people. You're lifting the lid on, on something that, you know, that, that maybe we wouldn't get to see so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel passionate about sharing the people. I mean, so many people in this bloody profession are so humble. I'm like, stop it. Let me singing from the rooftops about you. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad I can be that intermediate tree in those cases. Yeah, I'm going to like, hey, Chloe, you need to introduce me to like the hundred odd people. I need to speak to in a hurry. I'd be delighted to. (laughs) Exactly. Just in a hurry. I need to speak to the sloth expert. Like, Yeah, you only need someone. You let me know. I know you covered. (laughs) Nice. All right. So let's wind up and I want to get into the sort of shorter form questions now you can answer them short or long um however you please but so first question is what is what is your superpower what's the thing you do better than anybody else i like to think encourage people i like to just be a cheerleader and but not a false one i like to help them problem solve and see different pathways and i've been stuck at a lot of different points and i'd like to try and help people navigate that and i enjoy it 
All right. Uh, and All right. the flip side of that is what is your kryptonite? My kryptonite, imposter syndrome. Oh, how does it, how does that kind of show up for you? And how do you work with that? I don't want to lead you because maybe you don't work with it. Yeah, no, I'm, I guess I'm still figuring it out a little bit. I think it's just sort of self-growth and working on yourself and where you're feeling not so confident. I mean, it's a really complex thing. And I think from my understanding, it might be something I have to live with. And I think I'm just getting more comfortable living with it as sort of like my invisible friend who's there and hopefully doesn't interfere too much. That's sort of the relationship I'm working on having with it. Okay. What do you think is done well in veterinary medicine? I'm going to leave that quite purposely open for you. What I think is done well in veterinary medicine. Well, I actually think this might be controversial. I think it's got a good image. A lot of people want to go into it and the relationship with animals inspires a lot of people. So I think still it's got a really wholesome, warm-hearted image. I think that's changing and probably quite rapidly and probably that doesn't exist in a lot of veterinary circles. But sort of zooming out from a broader society perspective, I think we're really well respected. I think it's a tight knit profession. I think we're helpful. And I think we have a good reputation amongst society, as I think we should. And if you could change one thing more than anything else in VetMed, what would it be? I think it's the client vet interface and potentially managing that better when tensions are high and emotions are high. I think that young vets in particular face a lot of stress from a lot of things that are in our career, from long hours to low pay to high stress, um, fast decision making and a sharp learning curve. So a lot of those things need to be navigated in their own space. But I think the abuse that young vets or veterinarians face from disgruntled members of the public is unacceptable from my perspective. And I don't know what the answer is, but that needs to be handled better from a management perspective in certain cases. Now, what was the best piece of advice you, you can choose that you've ever given or you've ever received? Best piece of advice I've ever received was from my mum and... She said something along the lines of, it's important to do well in life, but it's more important to do good. And I thought about that a lot. And she was always happy when I got good grades, but she wasn't like over the moon. She's like, I just want you to do the best that you can and I'll be happy with whatever that is, as long as you're happy and you're making some sort of an impact. And I used to roll my eyes a little bit, but now I'm kind of at the spot where I'm happy and hopefully I'm making a very small impact somewhere. And uh, she was probably right, although I'd never tell her that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you should tell her. <laughs> I'll tell her. <laughs> you just think what Matilda oh, would absolutely like tell, tell her. You, yeah. so. Motherhood softened me. <laughs> and uh, I suppose you didn't say, don't expect any sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what was the worst piece of advice, maybe? maybe worst piece of advice you've ever given or received? You can Look, choose. You don't have to I name probably, names. I've here, received it and I've probably given it, and it's a complex one, but something along the lines of following your passions. So I think that's really important, definitely. But when given in isolation, that one piece of advice people can really hold on to, and I was guilty of this myself. And you just become so consumed and obsessed with following your passions. Whereas I hate to be the realist as well, but you also have to maybe do a little bit of due diligence of the future path, what it entails. Um, Check in with yourself about does it align with your goals and what you hope to achieve and your values even. So yeah, follow your passions. Yes, be aware of your passions and, and follow them, but maybe don't follow them blindly. Yeah, passions are such fleeting things, but life's work is not. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons we might find it quite hard to hold on to what we think we wanted or the direction we thought we were going because of this coming back to this passion thing. Whereas, as you say, those can change. So, 
So yes, that would probably be the one of the worst advice I've both received and given. Okay, if you were to recommend a book, a book that's had great impact for you, what would that book be? There'd be two books. One of them is from a professional standpoint, Zubiquity. Absolutely loved it. All about one health and the interconnection. So well written by a human cardiologist who was once called into the zoo and she had this moment with this primate and it sort of led her into researching all of these parallels between human and animal health, but written so well and so interestingly. So that's that one. The other one is the one I just finished, which is not clinical at all. It's called The Midnight Library. It's apparently won a bunch of awards. Someone recommended I read it so I bought it on the way to South Africa a couple of weeks ago could not put it down amazing it's about this woman is just about to die or she's she's passed away sort of she's in this middle world and she turns up in this library and all of the different books there are different pathways or like small decisions she could have changed that led to a totally different outcome some lives are rich some lives are happy some lives are sad once she's an alcoholic like just all of these different sliding doors moments and I guess I think about that a lot about if I didn't make that decision back then where would I be now and I guess it's the literary version of that but very captivating so highly recommend Oh, I was getting goosebumps as you described that. To be it was honest. really uh, wonderful. Okay, right. I'll be getting on Amazon right away after this. <laughs> Just finished. I'm posting my coffee if you want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's only coming from Germany, so it's okay, exactly. right? Throw it almost. <laughs> you, okay. Uh, here's the thing. You sign it, send it to me, and I'll I'll sign it and send it on to the next person. Yes, we'll do let's like do a that. Around the world yeah. thing. That would be okay, so much so fun. Okay, so if you email me your address, I'll do it, and then um. Done. You've got to keep me posted right. of who it goes on to next. That's it. And then somebody else listening to this yes. can then message me about they want it. I want the Midnight Library. Form. Okay, great. Let's do it. That would be awesome because we could create our own like little series of moments. See, all of, I feel like every sentence is just sort of leading down another another path we could talk about. I'm really enjoying this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back. We'll do a show about all the places the book went. In the <laughs> yes. I look forward to that. How cool would that be? All right. I like that. Okay. So if you could give one piece of advice to yourself back at your own graduation at the University of Melbourne, what would it be? It would probably be stick to your guns, do your own thing, because so many times I doubted that. And thank goodness I didn't listen to those voices in my head. <laughs> oh, those voices in our head. You got to get used to that, don't you? Yeah, you do. Okay, so these are two new ones we're testing out. We're doing some cool behind-the-scenes stuff with the with all the all the work I'm doing at the minute. So I'm gonna I'm, you're my guinea pig for a second. Great, okay. yep. <laughs> so they're pretty easy questions. One is to pass on one clinical tip and one non-clinical tip to any vets listening that have massively helped you in your career. What would those two tips be? So for the clinical tip, I have a tip that really helped me, and then I had a tip that really helped me in a different way. The different way one is that. When you're trying to get into a high pressure bottle, just stick a needle in it, like to release the pressure in. So that was great. But the actual important one that people might be able to use is a foundation in general practice. Can't be understated how important that is. So I was pretty keen to bypass that and just go straight into wildlife. And that's possible. And a lot of my colleagues did. However, my time in general practice, that interface with the client, I loved it. With the team, I loved it. And everything about it was so fundamental to developing those skills that are then applicable to wildlife and wherever you want to take them or into your general practice career. So you can't go wrong with that foundation. Just choose choose well. So make sure that they have mentorship there and, and all of the things that you need to thrive non-clinical tip too of 
non-clinical tip would be don't rule it out. So keep your options broad. Just remember politics, not-for-profits, small organisations, community, anything, your skills as a veterinarian are applicable. Just recently, NASA was looking to hire a vet to scope out their launch sites to make sure that there wouldn't be any impacts there. So, Or another cool example is this lab that's 3D printing coral reefs in Melbourne. Alex Goad, he's the head designer, he's a friend of mine. I went out there. They were recently looking for someone with scientific aptitude and a background in research and if possible veterinary medicine to help them on the design of their reefs and things like that so yes you're qualified to do that yes you can go work to print 3d reefs with your vet degree you can go straight from graduation with your cap and walk straight there if you want to so don't box yourself off is my biggest piece of advice just that's just my biggest piece of advice in general so you can just go ahead and delete the past 20 minutes just just that <laughs> don't box yourself off that's going to be the quote <laughs> the quote to go along with quote. your t-shirt photo <laughs> And it also, it sounds a little bit like, you know, the Midnight Library, we're back there living all the options, all the options, all the decisions you could make. It's just a, it's a smorgasbord of, of opportunities. Okay, so now, second to last question is, if you could swell your Instagram account or a Twitter account or whatever to communicate with everybody in veterinary medicine, if you go with Instagram, what would the picture be? What would the message be? If you could tweet one message, what would that message be? If I could share one message to all of the veterinary community. That's a really good question. You've got me stumped. That doesn't happen too often because it is such a diverse profession. So many different people out there working in different capacities. I would probably say the world is your oyster. I know I'm banging on it like a, like a drum, but um, whether you want to work flexible, whether you want to advance in private practice, whether you want to travel and work or work in the field, or you want to be an advisor, like you want to work exclusively from home. These options are available to you. They might not be immediately apparent, but we have such a wonderful community and this is something I just love talking about. So if you ever want to, if you're feeling lost and you just want to chat, I'm always here. Dave, I'm sure you are too. And as are, I think you'll find most people, but just remember that the world is your oyster and you work in such a wonderful community centered industry. And with that, you can springboard further into that career or into a whole bunch of other spaces. You might not have realized it yet, but it's possible. Fantastic. And the last one is really just to give you the mic and say, are there any, any last messages or thing thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with today? Oh, I just want to thank you for such a great and um, wide ranging chat, really, Dave. I've just enjoyed it so thoroughly. I'm so proud to be a member of this profession. I'm not ignorant to the challenges that it faces, and I certainly don't have all of the solutions, but it's something that occupies a lot of my mind, and I hope to continue being a voice for this profession. I know I'm sort of niched off in my own area, but I really hope to sort of span the whole scope of it, and I'm also always available if anyone wants to talk. So, yeah, no, thank you. Please do pick up a copy of my book if you interested in any of that if you want to know the organizations that it supports that's on the website and if you ever just want to chat as random as this one or even more so you know where to find me <laughs> <laughs> that is a change call it blunt dissection just be random gas bagging i've just loved maybe it that, no maybe, it's been it's been so insightful answer. i really um you've stumped me a few times you've challenged me it's it's just been a really wonderful wonderful chat so i really thank you for that dave no, thank you for being on. And for everybody listening then, the book is called The Jungle Doctor by Dr. Chloe Booting. And you can also check out, uh, we'll, we'll link to all of these things in the show notes, but loopabroad.com and Flora and Fauna International.
And if you want to be the third person owning the Midnight Library, just <laughs> jump on board and let us know and tell Dave to hurry up. That is it. I'm going to, I'll message you right away. <laughs> Please do. Uh, or when we finish recording, I'll give you an address. And uh, yeah, we'll make that happen. Brilliant. Chloe, thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time. Matilda has been generous in not waking up as far as, yes, as, far as I can I tell. So. But we'll see. <laughs> That's why I've been whispering a little bit in the yeah, background. Sorry. So, um, <laughs> no, it was great. Real pleasure. You know, I've taken a lot from this conversation, and um, I'm sure you'll have reached and touched people greatly through it. But thank you for all of the amazing work you're doing. And, you know, oh, butterfly wings. What can I say? Dave, thank you so much. Absolutely. The feeling is very mutual. So, thank you. And maybe let's do this again sometime. I do feel like we just scratched the surface. So, I'd love to talk to you anytime. Just let me know. We'll sketch out around too future for sure. Sounds great. Thank you, Corey. Happy day. So that is a wrap for another episode of Blunt Dissection. Thank you so much for listening. Before you jump off and get on with your life, would you do me a little favor? Or maybe three. Favorite one? Would you just do a quick shout out on social media to let people know you enjoyed the show? Favorite two? Drop a little review onto iTunes. And favor three, if you think somebody needs to benefit and hear this show today, please share it with them. The show has helped countless people overcome countless problems over the years we've been doing it. And it's recommendations and shares that allow that magic to happen. So from all of us here at Blunt Dissection Podcast, to all of you out there, until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy.